Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to add to the story. That's right. We have decided to post this little treasure from our Patreon feed. It's one we did quite a while ago, but in researching our Marie Laveau voodoo episode, we realized we'd solved a mystery. We solved a mystery on accident. It happens so often. I know we have that. That happens to you all the time, right? So I mentioned in the episode about Miss Clementine, the voodoo priestess murderess of the sacrifice sect. And how she confessed everything and more and continued adding to things. And you know, most people think she probably didn't do it. And no one knows who did it. But we have our suspicions. We do. So before you listen to this extra, make sure you've listened to episode 101, Marie Laveau, Voodoo Queen. Way down yonder in New Orleans. And then you can listen to this and tell us if you think this is the true Human Five. This is the AKC presenting a review of 1952. Twelve fateful months had ended. As the dying year merged into the new, it was a time of reflection. Might have reflected on how bewildering are the contrasts in the world below. So much that's good, alongside so much bad. Nothing perhaps new in that, nor exclusive to Britain. But striking nonetheless as we look back over 1962. Hello and welcome to the... Just These Stories minicast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you just a story. Each month we take a look at the intersection of fact and fiction, where headlines and history, news and nonsense come together to form the basis for enduring legends. And we do want to thank all of you lovely patrons out there. Yes, thank you so much for contributing to this madness, mayhem, and mischief. And we have a doozy of a story for you this month. This is a story about a man named Jake Bird. Which is maybe the greatest name ever. Yeah, I know. So, well, he comes from Louisiana. Oh, well, you two have a lot in common. Yes, I couldn't find out where he's from because he told police that it was somewhere out in Louisiana where there ain't no post office. Well, that's half of it. I know. It leaves a lot of room for speculation, Jake. Get it together. God. This was a 45-year-old drifter who traveled from town to town. He'd do odd jobs, and he often worked for the railroad company laying track. So on this fateful day, on October 30th of 1947, he found himself in Tacoma, Washington. That went exceedingly well for Mr. Jake Bird. Well, it went a lot worse for some other people. Because at 2.30 that morning, he found himself inside the Clute residence. I think that's how we're going to say that. It's spelled weird. K-L-U-D-T. So, correct us if you know how to say that. So, as reported on the National Wire, Bird confesses to killing woman, uses axe when caught burglarizing house. Jake Bird, 43, an error, who 19 years ago was convicted here of assault with intent to commit murder, was being held Friday by Tacoma, Washington police, who said he confessed to the murder early Thursday of two women in the coast city. The victims were Mrs. Brother Clute, 53, a widowed baker in a department store, and her daughter, Beverly June, 17, attractive Tacoma High School graduate, who were bludgeoned and hacked to death in their home. Attractive? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Well, it's like, let's build them up and make them sound great right before we reveal that they were bludgeoned and hacked to death. Thank you, 1947. Beautiful, dead girl. Yay. I mean, like, so this is like basically SVU. Or murder ballad. Whatevs. Detective Lieutenant Sherman Lyons of Tacoma Police Department said that the man held identified himself as Jake Bird and admitted to being the former Iowa convict. The officer said Bird signed a confession Thursday saying he killed two women with an axe during a fierce struggle after they awakened while he was burglarizing the house. He says that he had the axe for a bluff. That's a hell of a bluff. Just to bluff off anyone who tried to bother me. He entered the house through an unlatched back door. Lock your doors. Lock your doors. Richard Chase did the same thing. Everyone lock your doors. It's very important. Bird added in his confession that he told the women he would leave quietly, but they struggled with him after they were knocked down, so he had to keep swinging the axe. Well, of course. Bird was released from prison on December 24th of 1941. Right, so Bird confessed to this killing, and he said there was just like a botched burglary, Mm -hmm. that he was in there trying to get money for shoes. Oh, well, you do need shoes. It's very important. So whenever he was bludgeoning these attractive people, they screamed out, and the neighbors called the police. Police arrived pretty quickly, and as they approached the home, they saw a barefoot African-American man racing through the back door and hopping several fences in an attempt to evade officers. Bird was cornered by the police eventually, and he pulled a knife. And he, like, inflicted some serious damage. Well, eventually the prize fighter took him out. We'll get to that. No, you're right. One of the police officers... Tiny. That was his boxing name. (laughs) Yeah, one of the officers, Sabutis, who was a former prize fighter known as Tidy Lamar, after being slashed in the hand, subdued the assailant with a left hook to the jaw and a kick in the groin... I think that's justifiable use of force. I'm pretty certain that's somewhere in a handbook. Somewhere. So after the assailant is subdued by the kick in the groin, he is arraigned. And the hook to the jaw. Oh, and the hook to the jaw. I think it was the hook to the groin that did it, though. Um, He's arraigned in Tacoma, Washington. And a jury of nine men and three women were selected to hear the trial of Jake Bird, 45, charged with the axe murder of Miss Bertha Clute here on October 30th. The jury was chosen from 47... After the defense had exhausted its 12 preemptory challenges and had a number of challenges for cause denied. There are 21 witnesses. Prosecutor Patrick Steele said the state will call 21 witnesses with two scheduled to give surprise testimony. Questioning of the prospective jurors centered largely on impressions they had gained from newspaper or radio accounts of the crime and whether they would give the defendant a fair trial in view of the fact that he is a Negro. Confession. A confession, police assert, was dictated and signed by Byrd, also figured prominently in today's proceedings. Byrd was captured as he ran from the Clute home in which the bludgeoned bodies of Mrs. Clute and her 17-year-old daughter, Beverly June, were found. He showed little emotion as he sat in the courtroom, just turning his head to stare at the veneerman, only when the death penalty was mentioned. Right, so they were able to get a confession out of him, a signed, written confession. In this confession, he stated that he entered the Clute residence through the unlocked back door for an easy burglary, quote, 
and he brought along that axe for the bluff, and he did remove his shoes so he could sneak into the bedroom, and he stole a dollar fifty from Bertha's purse. And then when he returned to the kitchen, he turned around and found Bertha standing behind him. Bird told her that he only wanted her money and his shoes, and then he'd leave. But then suddenly, the ever-so-attractive Beverly June grabbed him from behind, and a fierce struggle ensued. So not only was she attractive, she was a borderline badass. Right. She's going to defend her mom. She's 17. She's like, you know what, this guy, this guy with an axe, I can take him out. Either that or he's full of shit. One of the two. But as they were looking into this Jake Bird character, they found out some interesting information. While he presented himself as this, you know, vagabond that just was trying to steal a buck or two to buy some shoes because he had a hole in a shoe. Just an old tumbleweed that blew into... Well, he was barefoot when they called him. He took his shoes off. (sighs) I was thinking it was like the barefoot burglar. Like I was going to give him a good name. Fine. There was a little bit more to the story. Right. They found out that he was not this innocent drifter. Are drifters ever innocent? Of course. They can be. You don't hear about the innocent ones. Right. Okay. Fair. That he just got into a little trouble. No, this guy had a history. So this is from the Des Moines Register in Des Moines, Iowa. And it is a an article called Jake Bird, A Ghastly Memory for Omaha. Forty squads of special police nervously fingered their brand new shotguns, patrolled the streets here 19 years ago, looking for the axe man. Five persons had fallen before the bloody hatchet wielded by the killer or killers. Three were dead. A fourth was in the hospital, with his skull crushed in four places. The fifth had a broken nose. For the second time in two years, Omaha was an armed camp in which children were not permitted on the streets after dark. And women, especially if they were young and attractive, started fearfully at every leaf tap on the window. When a waiter and small-time gambler named Jake Bird was arrested and identified as the Axeman, a shout for vengeance arose. A suave Negro with a taste for fancy haberdashery. Really? Yep, it's there. Bird was the winner of an interstate rivalry, which had left a bad feeling between Nebraska and Iowa sides of the Missouri River for years. Three persons had died under the bloody hatchet were J.W. Blackman, 75, Miss Walter Resso, 21, and her sister, Greta Brown, 18, all of whom lived here. The clothing of both women had been ripped from them. The only Nebraska witness, however, was a three-year-old Bobby Resso, who was spattered with blood and told a rambling story about a mysterious stranger who hit Auntie first and then Mama. The story was no good for identification purposes. The first person to report a full description of her assailant was Mrs. Harold Stribling, who woke up in her Carter Lake, Iowa home to find her husband lying beside her with his head beaten in and a man aiming a hatchet at herself. Because Carter Lake is legally part of Iowa, although it lies on the Nebraska side of the river, the suspect was brought to the Council Bluffs for questioning and identification. Iowa authorities would not give Bird back to the Omaha police once they had him, even though he was wanted in Iowa only for assault with intent to commit murder, which carried a maximum penalty of 30 years in a penitentiary. The Omaha police wanted him for murder, the penalty for which is death in Nebraska, but they couldn't get Bird to serve writ of habeas corpus on him. Bird was being conducted on a grand tour of Iowa jails, including the Mills and Polk County jails, as well as that of the 
Oh, no, that's not nice. Potawatomi. <laughs> Potawatomi? What's a Potawatomi? A county. It's a county in Iowa that I just mispronounced horribly. His keepers said nobly that they were protecting Bird from mob violence. Stribling, a former athlete, lay at the point of death for days while surgeons repaired the damage to his shattered skull, and finally he recovered. Mrs. Stribling recovered quickly from her injuries. She had suffered a broken nose and a slashed eyeball as she ducked from the hatchet's blow. A woman of magnificent self-control, she had argued the man out of killing her. The man directed her to lie down again on the bed with the evident intent of attacking her. Mrs. Stribling aroused his superstitious fears by remarking that God will strike you dead if he attacked her in the same house with her husband and child who lay sleeping nearby. Then they walked into a swamp. Mrs. Stripling put on a fur coat over her nightgown and put slippers on her bare feet and walked out into the night with a stranger. The pair walked along a lonely road, turning onto a swamp near Carter Lake. This is like some ambiance, like spooky, ominous tones behind Right? Us. And she's wearing a fur coat and slippers with the, like blood streaming down her face. It's chills. Right? It's good. The pair walked along a lonely road, turning into a swamp near Carter Lake. Miss Stribling's only defense was her persuasiveness. She argued the man into going his way, promising that she would not give him away to the police. The only harm she suffered was from the initial blow of the axe. From subsequent police, police believe that Mrs. Stribling kept her promise. They believe she deliberately gave a misleading description of the axe man when she walked to a policeman after leaving the man, her face streaming blood. After Bird was arrested, You have to wonder why. She promised him she would honor <laughs> after bird was arrested however miss stribling immediately identified him as the man who had wounded her and nearly killed her husband it was a weird scene with bird clad only in underwear rolled down to his waist denying calmly that he had ever seen miss stribling before while miss stribling urged i kept my promise jake but now that they've got you why don't you own up to it like a man i'll bet you're sorry you didn't kill me what the hell god this is such a good story, right? Miss Stribling never wavered in her identification of Bird. She was the state's star witness when the case came to trial in Council Bluffs in January of 1929. Bird never faltered in declaring his innocence either. He stuck to his story that he was in a gambling den here while the Stribling attack was going on, and that at 4 a.m. on the morning in question, he was in a cafe here. An Omaha policeman testified that he saw Bird in the restaurant. Bird insisted he was being framed. At the time, he was the only state witness supporting the charge, which had been brought against a Nebraska railroadman accused of killing a man by pushing him off a train. Speaking excellent English and occasionally venturing into mild humor. He was well-spoken. He was articulate. Bird appeared on the stand, neatly attired in a gray suit and a cowboy hat borrowed from his fellow prisoner. Ah, haberdasher. Mm-hmm. He had been irked at not being allowed to change clothes. He liked to look sharp. A well-dressed, well-spoken black man. I know. The trial was a sensation with Nebraskans and Iowans alike, forming queues before the Potawatomi County Courthouse in sub-zero weather hours before court opened. A high school class was dismissed so its students could attend the trial. Patrons lucky <laughs> enough to find seats were offered 250 for them. Nice. He stole 150 from her wallet. The woman was killed over $1.50 and people were paying 250 to sit at his trial. Mrs. Stribling's blood-smeared nightgown lay in view of the throng, 
In her dramatic recital of the attack on herself and her husband, she had to be removed to go to a lounge in a nearby room to get over a case of the shutters. Oh, she swooned. Oh, no. Five spectators did, though. Oh, my. One man had to be taken home in an ambulance. We need to bring swooning back. This guy was trying. (laughs) Maybe I will. This man swooned. You can swoon, too. Can I get out of work swooning? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Damaging evidence was also given by a neighbor of Stripling's, Miss Leona Thankins, who testified on the night of the attack she heard a noise at her home and found her hatchet missing. Shortly afterward, Miss Thankins said that a man answering to Bird's description came to her door and tried to get into the house by using various pretexts. Alarmed, Miss Thankins ordered the man away. At gunpoint, she testified. Nice. After he had gone, she went out on the front porch and found the missing hatchet lay there. Bird was found guilty and sentenced to not more than 30 years at Fort Madison Penitentiary. In 1941, Bird was released after serving 12 years. He was given the unusual time off for good behavior. What? A bonus of four years off for honor behavior. Is this Canada? Where is it going I know. I know. Two years later, Bird was arrested while burglarizing a home at St. Joseph, Michigan. He was found with hatchet in hand. Last Thursday, police in Tacoma, Washington, captured a man fleeing from a home there. Inside were the hacked bodies of Miss Bertha Clute and her daughter Beverly June. An attempt had been made to rape Mrs. Clute. Both women had been killed with blows of the hatchet. The man confessed to the slayings. It was Jake Bird. So Jake Bird is could definitely be considered a serial killer. Oh, absolutely. At one point in an uh, article I read, they called him a marathon murderer. Oh, because they didn't have the term. They didn't have the term. And I like that better. Like, if we're being honest. I like that term. That's good. Yeah. Let's keep it. Marathon murderers. I mean, there's, there's alliteration. Yeah. And you know I'm all about alliteration. So, Mr. Jake Bird is put on trial on November 26th in 1947. He's convicted after a three-day trial. So, they had a day and a half of testimony. And it took the jury 35 minutes to deliberate. They literally caught the dude red-handed. Literally, because he had blood on his body, on his clothes, along with brain matter. There were also his bloody fingerprints all over the scene. And we also have the confession. Well, Jake has a thing or two to say about the confessions, and you will find out through the course of this episode that Jake has a thing or two to say about most things. Well, so the state introduced a surprise witness, Tacoma police officer John Hickey, and he testified that he and Officer Russell Scadham gave Bird a good beating while he was in their custody. Hickey said... That's just procedure in 1947, though. Only in 1947? So Hickey said, I regret to say that I lost my temper after returning from the Clute home and viewing the terribly hacked bodies of the two women... I had asked Bird as we sat in the patrol wagon why he murdered the two women. He said he didn't do it. I asked him who did it then, and he said, it was Leroy. Of course it was. And I was like, who's Leroy? I asked well, him. he is a mystical Negro. Yes. He responded, oh, another Negro around town. Bird replied, you're lying, I replied. And he looked at me with a smug and insolent look. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I hit him in the jaw with my fist knocking him to the front of the patrol wagon. Then I struck him a number of times with my nightstick until he said, don't kill me. 
That brought me to my senses, and we took him to the hospital where a nurse said he wasn't badly hurt. And that's from the, the Seattle Post Intelligencer. And so later, whenever the prosecutor, Steele, moved to enter Bird's signed confession to evidence, the defense attorney, Selden, strenuously objected, declaring it had been obtained under duress and therefore inadmissible. But Judge Hodge, who didn't give a shit about any of that kind of stuff, because he also refused a change of venue, and he also refused for a change in defense, because Bird wanted a different defense attorney. And you know what? Bird was right on this case, because as we've seen, this guy, while he is obviously a psychopath, is a cold, calculating, classic killer. Dude, he's literally a psychopath. Like, the clinical definition of a psychopath, like antisocial personality disorder, where he's incredibly bright, incredibly manipulative, and just knows how to work people and genuinely does not give a shit about anybody but himself. It is amazing. And he moves with the skill and grace of Ted Bundy. Oh, no, definitely. And so, Bird did not take the stand. In sentencing, defense attorney Selden told the court he had done everything in his power to defend Bird and that no further appeals would be made on Bird's behalf. Then Selden declared, I feel whenever any man 45 years old gets an idea that no lives are sacred to anyone except his own. That man is a detriment to society and should be obliterated. 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 And he he went on to say that he ought to hang, and he said that he felt no sympathy for his client. So he was convicted, like I said, by the jury very quickly of first-degree murder because he was only tried for Bertha because they tried him at different times more frequently then. Should something happen and he not be found guilty, you still have a murderer to fall back on to eventually get a conviction. It's actually a very smart move to do that. They probably tried the one where they had more physical evidence if there was evidence of an intended sexual assault. Yes, because the police felt that he had attempted to rape her. So he was to die on January 16th of 1948 was his original execution date. So whenever Judge Hodge asked Bert for comment... He declared, I was given no chance to defend myself. My own lawyers just asked you to hang me. They apologized for defending me. If they were so reluctant to defend me, why did they contest the prosecutor's proof of murder and now say that everything is proven? At the end of his 20-minute impassioned speech, Byrd declared, All you guys who had anything to do with this case are going... To die before I do. That's actually an abbreviated version of what he said. All right, that one's from the Seattle Times. And there are lots of versions of what he said. What later becomes known as... The Jake Bird Hex. The Hex. A curse he sets upon everyone involved in this. So in one of my favorite headlines from the Albany Democrat Herald in Albany, Oregon, we have... Slayer bargains for black magic. Ooh. Act Slayer Jake Bird today received a request for information about his black magic. Last fall, shortly after he was sentenced to hang for the murder of Miss Bertha Clute here, Bird told officers, You policemen and judges will be setting and waiting at the pearly gates long before I roll up. Which That's is a good. much more yeah. badass version of the hex. Well, like another version, he says, like, I'm putting the... 
hex a Jake Bird on you. That's bullshit. I call, I agree. I call Bird shit. So, as we said, he's sentenced to hang. He's brought to the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Walla Walla, Washington. Which is the most fun to say. I could never live there. We've already mentioned what a well-spoken man he was. He began to speak. A lot. And he said, on New Year's Day, so remember he's supposed to die on January 16th, he says that he might be able to clear up some things. Things? Some things? things? Like several unsolved axe homicides covering the last 20 years. What? Yeah. Personally. Like all of them? Yeah, like all of them. And seeing as how he left Louisiana in 1925, I'm thinking he's probably the axe man. <gasps> the Axeman in New Orleans? That's the one. Uh, I want it to be true. The math probably doesn't work out, but they keep getting his age wrong. And I'm like, he's a voodoo prince. I don't think he knew when his birthday was. I don't either. I think he might have been 75 and looked like this. And I love that story. He's ageless. This ageless, he's the devil. New Orleans Axeman. Yeah, without a post office. So after he says, like, yeah, maybe I could uh, clear some things up. He goes on to say... In the Eugene Guard, Jake Bird, a 45-year-old Negro transient, awaits death in Washington State Penitentiary for killing two women here on October 30th and has admitted to 10 other slayings. Pierce County Undersheriff Joseph Carpatch revealed Saturday the killings during a 20-year period, including one killing in Iowa, in which another man has served 19 years, the slaying of a family of three in Indiana, three persons in Nebraska, one each in Illinois, Utah, and Colorado. Most of the crimes followed a similar pattern. Bird's Confessions reads, with robbery as the original motive and death of, to the person who detected him or interfered with his activities. Right, so he just keeps confessing to more things. And so on January 6th of 1948, at the request of Governor Monrad Charles Walgren, that's a name. What do you think he looked like? I imagine quite like a mounted bulldog. He <laughs> talked like this, undoubtedly. One can only hope. No, he didn't. He wore the wig like they do in Britain. So he sent Pierce County Prosecutor Patrick Steele and Tacoma Police Detective Lieutenant Sherman Lyons to the penitentiary to listen to the confessions. So Bird does offer to tell them more to clear his conscience, also known as Biden's time. <laughs> May I just say that the cast of characters we have, like the names seem like something a seventh grader would make up. Like Lions and Steel, the detectives, and Bird, the guy who's singing from Death Row. Let's make this into a musical. Oh my god, yes, yes. Let's do it. In the end, we find out he is the Axeman of New Orleans. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe a big jazz it's number. number. No. Yeah. Glad we got this cleared up. <laughs> and Steele told the press in the Tacoma News Tribune... We want to give him a chance to tell it, but we don't intend to permit him to use what he might have withheld as a means to add a few days to his life. Yeah, those families who have wondered long and hard who might have killed their loved ones, they just don't count. So, with that said, Governor Walgren gives him a 60-day reprieve <laughs> to help clear up the 44 murders that he insists that he is involved in in some way. Right, and but they're not they're not taking their chances. They're not going about this all willy-nilly. 
First of all, they do begin to look into some of the crimes and they confirm 11 kind of up front. Right. They solve 11 unsolved cases with this. And in the process of closing these cases, they have to do a little investigating, a little legwork. And so here's the story of some of the things that Jake Bird confessed to. Known to have slain 11, reads the headlines in Bitten Harbor, Michigan. Jake Bird revealed as blood fiend. Blood fiend? Was this a former, like, unsolved murderer? Yes. Like he was known as the blood fiend? No, no, no. No, I think they just mean, like, a blood fiend. Like, a person who kills a bunch of people. Like, just, uh, like, he can be a coke fiend. Or a sugar fiend. (laughs) Oh, yeah, same thing. Yeah, he's a blood, he likes blood. They're just, they're just being artistic about it, you know? Astounding tale of wanton crime told by condemned Negro. By the way, I'm as offended by the word Negro as any one of you might be. I promise you, I'm not enjoying it. I just find it amazing that this is in the paper. So, Tacoma, Washington, January 13th. The number of murders in which Jake Bird, the axe-swinging transient who's scheduled to die on the gallows Friday morning, says he committed or could clear up, increased to 44 today. 11 of them confirmed. Bird formerly lived in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Pierce County Prosecuting Attorney Patrick M. Steele disclosed the 176-page transcript of a letter to Governor Monsey Walgren that the 46-year-old Negro's latest tale of a trail of blood reaching from New York to Los Angeles and extending back to 1923. The letter in the transcript showed 11 of 12 murders previously confessed by Bird have been confirmed. He claims direct part and responsibility for at least 18 other slings and that there are 14 more murders he can solve but which he did not directly participate. The 12th original confession given to Undersheriff Joseph Carpatch two weeks ago in June of 1928, the murder of Harvey Boyd in East Omaha, Nebraska, is believed on the basis of available information to be a falsehood because Clarence Lucard had served 19 years of a life sentence in prison in the Iowa State Penitentiary for this crime. So because they had convicted a man, clearly this confession couldn't be true even though the other 11 were the idea that someone could be wrongfully convicted is just impossible impossible Steele recommended that governor walgren that bird's execution at walla walla penitentiary for the murder here last october 30th of bertha clute should be carried out as scheduled at 12:05 a.m on friday bird has frankly expressed that his hope that his confession would lead to clemency and it's also reported that William N. Sugarman Hockett and Lovell Donald Duck Boykins are shown here in the Benton Harbor Police Force Chief Alvin C. Boyd after they were picked up late last night on the request of Evanston, Illinois. Police, because the condemned ne- Negro Axe Slayer Jake Bird, 46, formerly of Benton Harbor, and now awaiting hanging at Washington State death cell, implicated Boykins and Hockett in the 1942 slaying of Miss Lillian Galvin, a wealthy Evanston radio manufacturer's wife, and her maid, Miss Edna Sibilski. Hockett and Boykin went to Evanston for questioning with the police of that city this morning. So, Sugar Man and Donald Duck of course. W- were implicated by Jake Bird, because the seventh grader has not stopped writing the story. <laughs> so, so, we have at least 11 other confirmed murders by this guy he is a serial killer he's a serial killer he was considered one of the most prolific serial killers in the united states until the 70s if everything he confessed to was true 
he would have been the most prolific serial killer up until this point in history. And interestingly enough, this did not get like huge national coverage. Well, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to finish the job. He had been sentenced to death and they wanted to hang him. So they wanted to make sure they he wasn't just blowing smoke out of his ass, I think is the technical term for it. And so that's how we get this glorious headline from the Bend Bulletin in Bend, Oregon. On January 15th, the day before he stands to be executed. Negro hypnotized by truth serum recites murder record. Walla Walla, Washington. Truth serum today bolstered Jake Bird's claim as the nation's most prolific murderer. I'm surprised they didn't use a lie detector. Right? Hypnotized by an injection of sodium pentothal, the 45-year-old Tacoma, Washington Negro axe slayer drowsily challenged convincing testimony to support his confessions of promiscuous slayings from coast to coast, authorities announced. After completing a two-hour examination with his inhibitions down, Bird was notified by Warden Tom Smith of Washington State Penitentiary that his execution scheduled for Thursday midnight had been stayed 60 days by Governor Mon C. Walgren. Bird, who confessed to 29 murders, insisted he could solve another 15 and smiled and joked when he heard the news but said he had expected something better and told Warden Smith that he thought he should be given a life sentence instead of death for the murder of Bertha Clute. Bird stretched out on a couch in the state parole room, and Warden Smith said he talked freely. Sometimes his voice slurred and became subdued. At other times, he sounded drunk. Occasionally, he got off track or became repetitive, and we had to bring him back to the subject. It sounded convincing on some stories and left a little room for doubt. Uh, And actually, I found this interesting. All of this was recorded. After it was over, Bird emerged from hypnosis. He displayed no interest whatsoever in the recordings, said Warden Smith. If we assume he was telling the truth before, he was telling the truth last night. So he gets that 60-day stay. And then he gets another stay. And throughout this process, he's saying that he needs $400 to get his transcript of his original trial. And the man who wrote him petitioning for black magic made mention that he could probably provide the $400, which I think is so interesting. Please write me full information about your black magic, the Kentucky man said. Of course he did. Mm-hmm. Now, my black magic, what did they mean? I don't know. I think it may have been racist. And he continued to appeal his case, and it got interesting. Around October 29th, of 1948, which you may recognize as near the anniversary of the murder. The Jake Bird hex had been pronounced, and the first mention we get of it in the papers is that three men have died unexpectedly. And then on Wednesday, before the 29th, Detective Lyons, who did most of the questioning when Bird was arrested, yesterday afternoon, Lyons, 45, died an hour after suffering a sudden heart attack. Jake Bird today denied having anything to do with so-called hex he allegedly placed on persons connected with the case. That stuff you say about me, my hexes, it's bad. Even the Supreme Court would get to believe in those things, and that's why they've denied my appeal. They want to get me out of the way. Right, he had appealed to the all the way to the state Supreme Court, where he argued himself, and after that, he tried to appeal to the United States Supreme Court. So this guy is trying to pull every trick out of the book and writing a few new ones, including hexes and mm-hmm. all sorts of craziness to get out of this. He, I mean, does he think he's actually going to get out of it? No, he knows he's caught. He just doesn't want to be executed. 
And I think he's trying to leverage everything he's confessing to against this death sentence. I mean, it's very obvious in interviews that he knows his numbers up. He says, if I served all the time in Hades that I deserved, I'd be there as long as it would take a seagull to move the United States West Coast grain by grain to Japan. He's so well-spoken. Articulate. So he is getting something out of it. He's getting some stays. Mm -hmm. He's getting extra time. Mm -hmm. Extra time to be alive, not extra time added to his sentence. Right. Yeah. But then we get the headline on October 29th of 1948, Jake Bird's Hex No Longer Funny. And a piece that comes out in the Daily Capital Journal in Salem, Oregon on November 1st explains that shortly after Jake Bird, Negro transient, was convicted of axe murder of Miss Bertha Clute here last fall and sentenced to hang, he was quoted as saying, the guys who had anything to do with this case are going to die before I do. A few weeks later, Superior Judge E.D. Hodge, who had conducted Bird's trial, died unexpectedly. Then, Chief Deputy Clerk Ray Scott, who had handled filing papers connected with the case, died unexpectedly. Joseph Karpak, Pierce County Undersheriff, who figured in obtaining confessions of more than half a dozen Midwest slangs from Bird, succumbed to a heart ailment. Thursday, Tacoma Police Lieutenant Sherman Lyons, who had obtained a number of confessions from Bird, including the murder of Miss Clute, died of a heart attack a few hours after finishing work. Jake is very much still alive, and his appeal from his conviction is still being processed by the state Supreme Court. Saturday will be the first anniversary of the slaying of Miss Clute and her daughter, Beverly June. So four people have died? Yes, and then on November 27th, a fifth person dies, and that is Jake Bird's defense counsel. Oh, he was no good anyway. Yeah. Of all the people that might have deserved it. Defense attorney Selden died unexpectedly of a heart attack. So Selden had actually asked to be relieved as the defense attorney. He said, my heart does not beat in sympathy for this man who fixes his life is more important than that of others, Selden explained. The court ordered him to finish the trial. He suffered a heart attack in his office last night and died within minutes. Everyone's dying of heart attacks, too. Right? That's so weird. Right? And so this press really begins to take notice of this. We get descriptions like this in the Ben Bolton. Bird's story reads like a dime detective mystery novel and has almost as many odd twists as most fiction writers would care to attempt. His story is a combination of hexes, confessions, several murders, and outright pathos. Yeah, it's like a Lifetime movie, except the the killing kind. They kill in Lifetime movies. I know, there's like the two kinds. Yeah. Like the sweet romance. That's the Hallmark movie. Oh, you're right. They're different. Different. Yeah. Yeah. Subtle distinction, but still. During this time, another appeal has come and gone. We get this doozy of an article in the Herald and News from Klamath Falls, Oregon. On April 27, 1949, the hex is dead and Jake Byrne again has a date with the death house on May 27th. The fabulous Jake Byrne, a 47-year-old North Carolina Negro who once confessed to implication in 44 assorted murders, defiantly saw Superior Court Judge Hugh Rossellini sign his death warrant yesterday. Courtroom attache wondered whether Jake would call down the wrath of his hex on the judge, but in a cell interview afterward, Byrne said, I don't believe in the hex anymore. A half hour later... He was on his way back to the state penitentiary, Death House, and what authorities said they hoped would be his last ride. I wonder why he stopped believing in the hex. It was it was working. <laughs> do you think he knew? What do you mean? Like that all the people had died. Oh yeah, he definitely knew. He was being interviewed about it all the time. So why did he think we're not want to pass the hex on? Was he just like tired of hexing people? Well, he said at one point, like if the superior court starts believing that I did this, they're not going to look at me very nicely. So he was like trying to curry favor, maybe? I don't know. Maybe he was just 
I don't know. I, I really don't. This guy's tricky. He did say that if I believed in the hex, of all the people I'd like to have hexed, it would have been Selden, which was his defense attorney. I buy that. And Selden had said things like, let your conscience be your guide because Bird is a dark black criminal and I'm defending him simply because I must. And then in another flagrant show, like flagrantly disrespectful action against Bird, when he was speaking, the judge Rosalini, who did sign the death warrant, Rosalini interrupted his lengthy plea to postpone sentencing until Reverend Avard Ornell, the state prison chaplain, had returned from his trip to New York. But he interrupts him and saying, We've had enough of this, Mr. Bird, the judge said coldly. To which Bird replied, If you go to heaven under these circumstances, God help you, Bird shouted back. <laughs> okay, and then this is a brilliant description of his of the events leading up to the sixth person being hexed. So this one's a little bit longer. It's from the Medford Mail Tribune in Medford, Oregon on May 27th of 1949. Jake Bird refuses to place direct hex on state chief prosecutor. At the precise moment when he had been scheduled to climb the gallows steps, Bird instead was calmly puffing a pipe and conversing with a district attorney, Patrick M. Steele, and a newspaper man in a midnight interview. Bird was granted a 30-day reprieve yesterday by the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Reportedly, he had placed a successful hex of death on six public officials connected with his trial. Did you put a hex on me? asked Prosecutor Steele. I won't say. I'll let you think about that. You can talk about hexes all you want. I'm just trying to keep from hanging, Bird drawled. Bird was dressed in dungarees. He was unshaven but calm, relaxed and apparently confident. Steele handed Bird a box of cigars. I hope they last you until you're finally hung, Steele said. Bird laughed and replied, Thanks for the cigars, Pat. Called disgusting, the little headline says. Earlier, Steele had called the new Bird reprieve the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. It was the condemned Negro's third escape from the noose after his original execution date more than 15 months ago. Prison sources, wishing to remain unquoted, said that Jake apparently hexed a former state prison guard. These sources gave the following version. The guard was asked by Bird for cigars. The guard replied, you won't need them. Bird had said, you'll die before I will. The guard quit his job and went to New England and died of pneumonia. Bird had ordered strawberries, bananas, chicken, and ice cream for his last meal. Instead of the luxury diet, Bird cheerfully died on common prison fare. So that's why I gave him the cigars. Yes, yes. Just being a smart ass. I think so. I love it. A little bit more information on the sixth victim. Bird said he told Stoddard, you'll die before I will. He added, oh, I put a hex on him, all right, but it was just for fun. It's just fun. This is just fun and games. The warden said he told the condemned man, you ought to get down on your knees and start praying. Smith and Bird apparently thought... He was bringing bad news and was going to read his death warrant and replied, That's just what I've been doing! (laughs) When informed of the 30-day reprieve, Bird was silent for a few moments and then said, Well, I guess my lucky cards are holding out. Guess his praying and hexing was working. Yeah, in in good measure and equal combination, they work wonders. And then there was tale that he had placed a whammy on a reporter. A whammy? Yes. No whammy, no whammy. But whammy, but whammy, he did it. No whammy. News cheating Jake Bird, often doomed but never hang, appeared today to be nearing the end of his rope. Well, his fourth rope. Oh, this guy's clever. I know, just punning like crazy. In a curt court session, and we get this lovely little assonance and alliteration, the usually filibustering Negro was cut short by Superior Judge Hugh Rossellini before he could commence his customary courtroom oration and was sentenced to hang on July 15th at the State Penitentiary at Walla Walla. 
Bird trotted out his famous hex again yesterday in a brief verbal exchange with James Faber, Tacoma News Tribune reporter. Angered by a remark of Faber's, Bird told the reporter he was not long for this world. Six persons on whom the husky transient has pronounced the whammy have died. Why is he husky all of a sudden? He's husky, he's swarthy, he's brawny, he's... They're just like, we need an adjective. We need a a backhanded compliment. So he has appealed and appealed and appealed, and he's been reprieved and given time and given extra time to confess to all of these killings, which a lot of them were true. I think they confirmed 12. Oh, well, I think they confirmed 12. One of them is the one which the man was already imprisoned for that they refused to look at, even though it sounded really credible. So I'm saying that one counts. So 11, 12. Depending on who you ask. 11 and a half. Huh? You half kill somebody? I guess so. <laughs> but he even tries to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. Like and National like, yeah. Washington Big They're man. like, nah. <laughs> nah. So this sentence by Rosalini, July 15th, is going to go forward. He is run out of luck, run out of praying, run out of hexing time. I mean, I cannot help but think that he probably was on a ninth life or something. Because, I mean, he really has, like, he just has to be out. He's had so much luck thus far. And to not have been caught before is sort of extraordinary. You know, like he did do a little time, but even the way that worked out was like, oh, it's in Iowa, but it was on the Nebraska side of the river or vice versa, whatever that was. Like he got off with just attempted murder instead of being tried for the three other murders. He's just been an incredibly lucky man. And I think it just absolutely, he it exhausted the stores. I was say, some of it was luck, but some of it was his just maneuvering. Yeah, he was just this clever, manipulative guy. Right, uh, somebody called him a legal-wise Negro at some point, which I think is terrible. So, we get this article from the Albany Democrat Herald. Today, Jake Bird puffed his cigar a little faster when the U.S. Supreme Court denied his last-minute plea. He was scheduled to climb through the gallows steps at 12.05 a.m. Friday. His confidence received another blow when Governor Arthur B. Langley's office reported that it had taken no action and contemplates no action. Bird said, it doesn't seem right that they should hang me. I bet he thought that. (laughs) Warden Tom Smith said he still feels lucky. He thinks something can still happen. But the news was obviously a blow. Six persons, including Lyons, died unexpectedly shortly after receiving the hex. A few hours after today's hanging date was set, the soft-spoken prisoner hexed Jim Faber, Tacoma News Tribune's reporter. Faber had asked Bird how he felt about his remaining time that he had left, and Bird sneered, you don't have long to live yourself. Faber, who went to prison for the third scheduled hanging, said he would not go to the penitentiary this time. I'm staying home close to my witch doctor's mask. He laughed. <laughs> I wish he would have died. <laughs> Sorry if that's your grandfather, but like just that smart ass remark. I can't help but kind of think that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, someone said he should die. He said, how do you feel about like not getting to live <laughs> okay valid question i guess fine i take it all back favor i'm glad you made it so he's finally gonna climb the gallows steps right and for some reason the hanging time is 12:05 a.m i thought that was odd too i know so on friday july 15th at 12:05 a.m jake bird pays death penalty at walla walla Jake Bird, 47, by his own confession, the most prolific murderer in America, forgave the world today just before he was hanged on the gallows of Washington State Prison. 
There is no hatred in my heart, he wrote in his own crude handwriting. I hope all who witness my death have no malice in your heart toward me, because I feel none toward you. The Reverend Arvid Ornell, prison chaplain, was reading the statement aloud when the trap was sprung at 12.06. Bird, a Negro, who hexed all officials who participated in his arrest at the trial, died for the murder of Miss Bertha Clute during his robbery. So I love I love that he is like, I forgive everybody except the six people I hexed and died. But it's also interesting is they're reading the statement and they don't even let him finish reading it. He's not even reading. The reverend's reading right, it, which is they, like doubly bad yeah, to me because you're cutting not, off a reverend. Yeah, he's not even allowed to finish his like forgiveness statement. I think they were afraid it was like, and all of you present shall die. <laughs> and they're like, don't let him read it. Don't let him read it. And then he's hung. Hanged. Yes. And they, they do notice that in this article. Last statement read, Bird dropped to his death on the gallows at Walla Walla State Prison at exactly six minutes after midnight while his last statement was being read from the hangman's pillar. He was pronounced dead at 12.20 Pacific Standard Time. Before he walked into the gallows room, Bird told the guard captain, Tom Hubbard, I don't want to be led. I don't want people to think I'm afraid. Let me walk out by myself. He went to his death calmly and unemotionally, without any bravado that sustained him through the last two years. He managed to stave off the hangman's noose. Since his conviction, he had predicted that as a result of his hex, most officials would be waiting at the pearly gates when he rolled up. At least six of them actually did die of various causes while he lived on in prison. The death chamber was crowded with almost 100 witnesses as Bird entered between two guards. He marched stoically to the gallows, apparently resigned to his fate. They did ask him, like, do you have anything to say? And he started to say something, and they, like, put the bag over his head. <laughs> like, we're not going to try to kill us. I really do think they were afraid of him, which is amazing. Bird's body plummeted through the well. The rope jerked briefly and then was still. Dr. Elmer Hill waited a few minutes and examined the body. He pronounced Bird dead just 14 minutes after he dropped through the trap. Bird had written a statement in his own handwriting, and the minister faltered once or twice while reading the poorly spelled document. Jesus Christ is my Savior, read Ornell. I feel all my appeals have been successful because the student in the future will ask why the questions were not answered. There's no hatred in my heart, and I hope all who witness my death have no malice in your heart toward me because I feel none toward you. And we, the students, <laughs> do ask questions. Are asking questions, but really, I don't think they're the questions that he would want us to ask. So this trial and execution and appeal process cost the state of Oregon in 1949 $10,000. But you know what? Like, how much would it have cost to convict 11 different people? For the murders that he was found to have committed. Well, I mean, I don't think they were going to spend any money on it. I'm just saying. Like, I, yeah. Like they did been... get something out of it. Right. It's like some of the like really expensive trials we've talked about. like McManus uh, preschool trial. Yeah, or Ing. Oh, my God. Where they right. were worthless waste of money. At least this, they got some closure on a bunch of unsolved cases. Right. And, you know, it's like with the OJ trial, at least we got reality television. Damn it. (laughs) But here is the most fantastic epilogue that this story could possibly have. This is from August 25th of 1949. So month-ish after he was hanged. Right. And it's from Council Bluffs, Iowa, from the Omaha Roundup section of the paper. And it reads, Realtor Murder's Wife Kills Self. Realtor Murder's Wife Kills Self. 
Murder and suicide was the opinion of Dr. Wilbur Kesey, Chicago, Illinois, who examined the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd N. Osborne, Omaha, in an isolated cabin resort at Grand Morales in northeastern Minnesota. Osborne, 58, was a prominent Omaha realtor. He married the former Miss Helen Adkins Scott, 47, in January. His first wife had died in 1945. Dr. Kesey was vacationing at the resort. The bodies were found Wednesday morning by Osborne's 19-year-old son, David, when the maids said that they were unable to open the cabin door. Notes left by Osborne indicated that he killed his wife after having a nightmare about Jake Bird, axe slayer, who was recently hanged in Washington State. J. Henry Eliason, a Cook County attorney, said he found a note near Osborne's body. Osborne wrote, I must have had a nightmare. I didn't realize what I'd done to Helen. This is the easy way out. The note ended in a scrawl. Eliason said Osborne's death was apparently due to taking poison. Eliason gave his version of the double killing. The Osbournes discussed the case of Jake Bird after retiring Tuesday night. Later, Osborne got up, took a hatchet from his cabin wood box, and hit his wife in the head several times. Then he knotted his pajama bottoms around her neck. David Osborne found his father fully clothed lying on the bed while writing the note. Osborne made several checks to pay bills and other checks to his son. So the ex-murderer kills again. He kills people indirectly. Even from death. Even after the gallows. It's amazing. Is it? Like, it's just, like, it's unbelievable, I guess is what I want to say. It's not amazing. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's unbelievable that this transient man was able to get away with possibly in the 40s numbers of murders confirmed about 12 murders that he just got away with it's in this day and age it's hard to imagine that and then he was able to curse people to hex them and six people died right related to the hex right and then a man dreams about him hacks his wife to death and then kills himself less than a month later i mean you have to wonder if Jake Bird did have a little hoodoo on him, if he was able to put these little hexes out. Little? But, big. Big. <laughs> but you know what? We're just here to tell you the story. 